A weary world indeed rejoices because of Christ our Savior. It is always so good to be together here as a church, to call each other to worship, uh, to lift our voices in praise together, to pray for one another as the family of God. Thank you uh, to those of you who, who raised your hand so that we were able to have that moment of praying for one another. And now to together hear from uh, the Lord in his, in his word. Leo mentioned this next Sunday. Uh, there's two services. We have our normal Sunday morning service. We'll be continuing through our study of, of Luke. And then we're meeting that evening as well for our Christmas Eve service. Just wanted to give you a heads up on some good news. You don't need to choose between those two as to which one you come to. Uh, my family and many others will be attending both, and I want to encourage you, if at all possible, uh, to do the same. I'm looking forward to gathering that morning and that evening together. I thank God that I grew up in a home where, uh, whether Christmas was on, on Sunday morning or Christmas Eve uh, or, or, uh, or whenever, uh, or Christmas Day, we went to church. And I'm the recipient of that kind of uh, commitment to the local church that so many of you exemplify as well. All right, Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, we've, we've seen these first two chapters of Luke contain these, uh, these songs of salvation that are celebrating that God is on the move, that God is keeping his promises, that he is bringing mercy and forgiveness and peace uh, to a world of need, to a world of darkness. And this passage in the beginning of, of Luke chapter 2 narrates the birth of Christ and then gives us the song of the angels. And so our sermon title is The Best News Ever. And we'll be looking at the first 21 verses of Luke chapter 2. This is God's holy and authoritative word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, that will be for all the people. For unto you is born 
this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. May God bless the preaching of his word. There is an incredible irony in the world today and I've been reflecting on it, and that irony is this, that so many people celebrate Christmas. Businesses close, schools close, we all get gifts for one another. So many people celebrate Christmas, and at the same time, so few know the meaning of Christmas. Now, of course, people know that Christmas is when the birth of Jesus is celebrated, but what I mean is that not many know the meaning and significance of his birth. And the reason for this is that there is so much confusion and even so much ignorance in our world today about the basic message of Christianity. We hear people say it's not uncommon if you talk to others about religion, you hear uh, this sort of thing that all of the major religions are essentially the same and that is that we should try to be a good person, that we should try to love one another. So Christianity, there's a lot of people who think that they are Christians but don't understand what Christianity is. Christianity is understood popularly as a system of counsel uh, it gives exhortations and advice for better living. So do more of this, do less of this, develop these habits, pray, go to church so that you can be this kind of person and get to heaven. That's how Christianity is understood by so many. And that is one of the ways that this world is fighting the song of the angels that we hear in Luke chapter 2 by reducing the glorious good news of Christianity to a message of self-improvement. We have turned good news into good advice. But gospel 
means good news. And news does not communicate something that we must do, but something that has already been done. The heart of Christianity is not a moral code. The heart of Christianity is a savior for sinners. God in love came into the world he created to reconcile sinners to himself through his son by dying in our place. Christianity begins with what, and I love this phrase, what J. Gresham Machen, a theologian, calls the triumphant indicative. Meaning that Christianity comes to us fundamentally and it's not saying do this. It's saying this has been done. It is an announcement of the gracious activity of God in Christ. J. Gresham Machen says this. He says Christianity depends not on a complex of ideas but upon the narration of an event. Without that event, the world in the Christian view is altogether dark and humanity is lost under the guilt of sin. And so he says, what I need first of all is not exhortation, but a gospel. Not directions for saving myself, but knowledge of how God has saved me. Have you any good news? That is the question I ask of you. I know your exhortations will not help me, but if anything has been done to save me, will you not tell me the facts? That's what this passage is communicating, the good news of salvation in Christ. Luke is writing to tell us the facts of what God has done to save us, of what God has done to break into our weary world, to give us peace and joy, not only now, but for all eternity. Machen also says that this is how Christianity changed the lives of so many. He says, where the most eloquent exhortation fails, the simple story of an event succeeds. The lives of men are transformed by a piece of news. This news is the greatest news the world has ever known. And so I want to examine this text under several headings. First, a humble birth. And this is verses one through seven, a humble birth. This chapter begins with the Roman government uh, essentially flexing their muscles. Caesar Augustus or Octavian uh, is known in history, born in September of 63 BC. He is the great nephew of Julius Caesar, who came to power through victory over Mark Antony. Caesar Augustus issued a decree that everyone in the Roman Empire, which was a, a geographic space about the size of the U.S., travel to their ancestral home to be registered so that taxes could be registered. Joseph was from Bethlehem, the city of David, and so Joseph and pregnant Mary are traveling to register for the census in obedience to the Roman government. Unknown to them, God was using this pagan decree to bring to pass the promise of Micah chapter 5 that a ruler would come from Bethlehem. And so what appears to be a flex from the most powerful man in the world is in fact a demonstration of the hidden, overriding providence of God. What a comforting doctrine, the doctrine of the providence of God. 
that he is in control, that he is sovereign, that he is good. Throughout history, human governments are often the unknowing, unintentional agents of God's work in the world as the Lord sovereignly rules over all things to accomplish his purposes. And so J.C. Ryle, commenting on this passage, says, The heart of a believer should take comfort in the recollection of God's providential government of the world. A true Christian should never be greatly moved or disquieted by the conduct of the rulers of earth. He should see with the eye of faith a hand overruling all that they do to the praise and glory of God. He should regard every king as a creature who with all his power can do nothing but what God allows and nothing which is not carrying out God's will. So there's a little bit of pastoral counsel from J.C. Ryle that is all the more timely as we head into an election year. We trust not in earthly rulers, but in the providence of our God. And then what is recorded is seemingly a, a very ordinary and humble birth that is in fact quite extraordinary because it is God and the flesh. This baby is then wrapped in cloths and we're told laid in a manger, a, a feeding trough for animals because there was no room anywhere else. So one commentator says at this point, a stable was the Messiah's first throne room. What a picture. Here is the king who is born in a stable. The king of glory came as a baby born in the squalor of a borrowed stable. This is the great doctrine of the humiliation of Christ. In, in the realm of Christology and the doctrine of Christ, we talk about the, the exaltation of Christ and the humiliation, the humility of Christ. And here is a glorious picture of the humility of Christ. J.C. Ryle says, says this, we see here the grace and condescension of Christ. Had he come to save mankind with royal majesty surrounded by his father's angels, it would have been an act of undeserved mercy. Had he chosen to dwell in a palace with power and great authority, we should have had reason enough to wonder. But to become poor, as the very poorest of mankind, and lowly as the very lowliest, this is an act that passes knowledge. It is unspeakable and unsearchable. Never let us forget that through his humiliation, Jesus has purchased for us a title to glory. Through his life of suffering as well as his death, he has obtained eternal redemption for us. The glorious, staggering humiliation of our Savior. Phil Riken says this, the sufferings that commenced with his incarnation culminated with his crucifixion. The same body that was wrapped in swaddling cloths was also wrapped in a burial shroud. The manger points us to the cross and to the grave. And this is how we are saved, by the humility of our Savior. What a mystery that God would humble himself and take on human form. This is our Savior. 
born in a room for animals, died on a cross for thieves? And the question we must ask ourselves is, what welcome will the Savior receive from you and me? The end of verse 7 says there was no place for them in the inn or in the guest room. Jesus was largely ignored and unnoticed in his birth, just as he is largely ignored and unnoticed in the world today. Having no room for Jesus in that moment of his birth is a statement of what is to come, because all through his life and to this day, people have no room for Jesus. Our hearts are naturally just like that town. Have you made room for him in your life? Does this Lord have first place in your decisions, in your feelings, in your desires? Prepare him room. Let the King of glory enter in and worship this child who is born. The text then continues, and in fact, there's a rather sudden change of perspective that leads to our second heading, which is a heavenly anthem. Verses 8 through 14 record a scene that, that could scarcely be more spectacular. This is the best birth announcement ever. It makes every gender reveal idea ever seem boring and pathetic in comparison I wonder, have you ever seen a, a musical performance in a remarkable setting? All right, think of that. All of that pales in comparison to this angelic choir. We're told that not too far away, the stillness of the dark sky that night was set ablaze by a warrior of light, an angel appearing to a group of shepherds. By the way, if someone were to make this story up, do you think shepherds are something that would be included? It is not. Why would Luke draw attention to the very first announcement of the Messiah coming to those at the bottom of society, to those without social standing, without credibility as witnesses, unless it happened that way? This is similar to what we see later in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead where women are the first witnesses chosen by God to be those witnesses of the resurrection. Here, God chose shepherds to demonstrate that this Savior really will be for all the people. And so the angels appear to them. We are told in the text that the glory of the Lord shone around them. This is the Shekinah glory of the presence of God. Someone said, imagine the joy these angels had in going out in the middle of the night and scaring people half to death with the glory of God. The angel declares that he is announcing good news of great joy. Every one of us has reason for joy today because of this good news. What is this good news? That a child has been born. He says, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Three titles revealing the identity of this child. Savior means that he is a rescuer. He is a deliverer from every enemy. Christ means that he is the anointed one. The long-awaited Davidic Messiah has arrived. Lord 
means that he is the sovereign ruler over all things. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the God and king who is worthy to be praised. Savior, Christ, and Lord. These shepherds are told that the Lord of the universe, the true and only God, has been born on earth and is lying in a manger in Bethlehem. Now, if you're an angel, that is a tough sell, even if you are an angel. We're all naturally slow to believe the truth, and so to confront our human propensity to skepticism and to doubting, before the angels can even catch before the shepherds can even catch their breath. We wonder how this was, was planned out. I imagine, hey, let's do it this way. One goes, and then let's hit them all together. Suddenly, then, there are thousands and thousands of angels to declare the significance of this event. The angels had always praised and worshipped God in heaven, but now they were taking their show on the road. And now they are singing a new song. Their song, verse 14, is called the Gloria. Uh, Gloria in excelsis Deo, which is Latin for Glory to God in the highest. Mary's song in chapter 1 announced that the coming of Christ is the source of all joy. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Zechariah's song announced that the coming of Christ is the fulfillment of God's great promises. The dawning of divine mercy for those who sit in darkness. And now... The angel song announces that the coming of Christ is the pinnacle of God's display of his own glory. Here God is glorifying his name. Glory to God in the highest. In the incarnation, God is on the move for his own glory. He has taken the initiative in sending his son to put his glory on display. To make himself known. To, to reveal the glory of his love for a world lost in sin. To reveal his great justice. To reveal his great mercy. All of it is made known in the coming of Christ. Glory to God in the highest. And then the second line of their song is the declaration of peace on earth. Among those with whom he is pleased. Among those who have experienced divine favor. Peace on earth. We need inward peace in our own hearts. We need outward peace on earth. Among nations. In our relationships. Outward peace. And most of all, we need upward peace with God in heaven. This is the great need for peace. Because the scriptures teach that all of humanity in our sin have rebelled against God and are at enmity with him. And that God in his justice and holiness, because he is a good God, is therefore set against sinners. And so the natural relationship of every one of us as we live in this world, naturally, we are enemies with God. 
In a relationship with God, sometimes people talk about entering into a relationship with God. I think it's better to say we are all in a relationship with God. The question is, is that a relationship of love and warmth or of hostility and hatred? But there's no avoiding relationship with our God and Creator. And the angels are announcing peace on earth to say that, that God in His great love sent His Son so that we could have a relationship of peace with God, even the one we have sinned against. And if you wonder how is that possible, it is only possible because God's penalty for sin was willingly received by Christ in His death on the cross. So peace on earth reminds us that Jesus was born to die in our place. He has reconciled us to God and he has made us peacemakers to spread his peace on the earth and he has promised that one day his peace will cover the earth because the Prince of Peace will reign over all. This is why the birth of Christ is so essential. There is no hope of salvation if Christ never came into the world if Christ was never born, if Christ never died, there is no hope of salvation. But he came that good news of great joy might be declared for all who will turn from their sin and trust in this glorious Savior for the forgiveness of their sins. And when we believe, we join in the angel's song. When we believe, we join in the shepherds wondering and marveling at what took place. Because we come to see and to know that Jesus is Lord of all. Now this leads to the third point, which is a heartfelt response. The shepherds went and found Mary and Joseph. They found the baby Jesus lying in a manger. And Luke describes what happens next so that we might today learn from the response of those who were there. And the response that we see here is witness and wonder and worship. First, in verses 17 through 18, the shepherds witness. By that I mean they are speaking to others about this child who has been born. Verse 15 says that uh, it, they talk about to each other there this thing that the Lord has made known to us. Notice it was God. God is not silent. He makes himself known. He speaks. He reveals and he does that here. And then verse 17 says that they made it known to others. So there was something made known to them that they then made known the saying concerning this child. And if you put yourself in their shoes, how could they not talk to others about what they had experienced? You are never going to believe what happened in the field last night. They told others of this child who is the Savior. And verse 18 then says that all who heard it, so there's this large group of people that they were telling about this, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So the picture is the shepherds spreading word throughout the town, witnessing, talking about this message of a Savior who would be born, who is Christ the Lord. The lesson for us there is that when we receive good news, it cannot be kept to ourselves. We, we join in joyfully the privilege of sharing that good news with others. And so we today ought to pray for open doors. We ought to invite people uh, to 
Sunday morning and to Christmas Eve. We ought to uh, take initiative toward the lost. We ought to share the gospel with others as we are able. Talk about what God has done just as the shepherds did so long ago. There is this witness and then there is, is wonder. And here, verse, verse 19, and this is where it's, it's so important for us in the midst of the busyness of the holiday season to truly slow down and to reflect on what God has done. It's one of the great blessings of gathering together like this is that we are able in an undistracted way to consider what God has done for us, to consider what we deserve and to consider the blessings of his mercy and grace that he has lavished upon us. Here we see Mary as an example of this kind of wondering, this kind of uh, uh, turning things over in her heart and her mind. The language there in verse 19 is, is very significant. She treasures up these things, pondering them in her heart. She's, she's reflecting on them slowly and carefully. She's turning them over in her mind. She is treasuring these things in her heart. And friends, that's what we are supposed to do with the message of the gospel. Mary is a model of reflection, of, of deep study, of, of careful thinking. And notice she's not pondering how she feels. She is not pondering the challenges of her situation. She is pondering the truth. She is pondering what God has done and we ought to do the same. There is witness, there is wonder, and then there is worship. Back to the shepherds in verse 20 is where we see this worship. We're told they are glorifying and praising God just as the multitude of angels were praising God. The shepherds now join in this song of the angels lifting their voices in praise to God because when salvation comes, it inevitably leads to songs of joy. It inevitably leads to this glorifying and praising God, the lifting up of our voices and our hearts to God for the salvation that he has given. Randy Alcorn wrote a novel called Deadline, and I want to share a, a few paragraphs with you. He describes a, a conversation between a man named Finney and an angel named Zior. This conversation is happening in heaven. And Zior, the angel, says this. He says, etched forever in my mind is that incredible day. Zior's voice lowered to an intense whisper. When the Son of God stepped through the portal of eternity and left our world for yours. Creation was a wonder, but not a miracle. It pales in comparison to the true miracle that he would become one of you. Not for a moment, but for a lifetime and for eternity. God became man. While Gabriel announced the miracle on earth, Michael announced it to us. I will never forget his words as he pointed through the portal and we gazed upon that teenage girl. In a voice that seemed to take on Michael's texture and tone, Zior proclaimed the archangel's unforgettable words of old. 
the unborn child now living in this Galilean peasant girl is the creator of the universe. When Michael saw the shock on our faces, Zayor continued, he simply added, God has become a human child. And then listen to this. Finney marveled not only at what Zayor was telling him, but that the angel had never ceased to wonder at an event millions on earth affirmed in their doctrinal statements with such little wonder at all, with hardly more than a second thought. To Zayor, Christmas was not making a list and shopping at a mall, or on Amazon we would now say. It was, Christmas was the heart and soul of the cosmos itself. The angels never cease to wonder. And then Alcorn continues, one more paragraph. He continues that conversation and the angel says this, and just when we thought God could not surpass this greatest miracle with another, there came the greater one. Zyre stood and his voice trembled, not only with awe, but now with unmistakable anger. That little hill where little men were permitted to do unspeakable things to God's own son. My comrades and I jammed against the portal, begging permission to break through and strike down those cowards, to unleash the relentless wrath of heaven's army. Here were these puny men obsessed with the offenses of others against them, while themselves committing the ultimate offense of the universe, driving nails through the flesh of God. Any one of us would have struck them all down and we yearned to do it. But Michael would not permit us, Zayor said softly, for Christ would not permit him. We writhed in agony, Zayor continued. We had never thought such pain possible here in the perfect realm. And yet we grew to know, though not completely understand, that all this was necessary to meet the demands of God's justice and his love. The Son of God did not need us to rescue him. With a single word, with merely a thought, he could have unmade all men, destroyed the universe, purged all creation of the ugliness that nailed him to that cross. But he did not, he would not, he did not go there to be rescued. He went there to rescue. He didn't come so that we could rescue him, which we could never do. He did not come so that the angels could rescue him. He came to rescue us. And friends, this is the heart and soul of the cosmos. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Do you know yourself to be a sinner? Have you turned from your sin, repented of it, and come to Christ, not working your way to Him through your good works, which can never be done? We have all fallen short of His glory. We all deserve divine judgment. And our only hope is this Savior, the Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the best news ever. Our greatest need is not an exhortation. It is a gospel. We don't need 
directions for saving ourselves. It is not possible. We need the knowledge of how God has taken action in Christ to save wretched sinners like you and me. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to this God who has brought us peace with God, who has filled our hearts with joy. May we, brothers and sisters, never cease to wonder at this message of grace and salvation, the best news that the world has ever known. Glory to God in the highest. A Savior is born who is Christ the Lord. Praise be to his name. Amen.